Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Lou. Hi. Hello, divers. It's so lovely to be back. We had a a short, sharp lockdown here in Perth, and I did wonder if we would be able to record together. Mm, mm, I thought it might continue a little bit longer. But But here we are. We're back in Louise's study, thank goodness. So we're sitting here. We've got cappuccinos. It's a weird day with... We've had fires in Perth, so it's very smoky and foggy and overcast. It's a bit moody. Isn't very it? moody. It's moody. Very atmospheric yeah. here in mm. Perth. Not at all like a usual Perth day. And today we've got some bookish news. We've got a writing tip. We've got a fun theme. And we've got some other things we've been diving into. But first of all, what are you reading at the moment, Lou? I am reading this great book by Chris Whitaker called We Begin at the End. Uh, I really want to read this. I know. It's it's a really big story, mm-hmm. so, you know, it, it really draws you in. And I'll, I'm not going to talk a lot about it other than to say that it starts with a search 30 years ago. The whole of the town is out oh. marching in a line searching for a missing child. Oh, and one of the people in that town's line searching is a young boy of 15 called Walk. And he's there with one of his friends. And they notice one of their other friends is missing. And the missing child is the sister of another friend of theirs. And the story really centres on those four 15-year-olds. And we move forward 30 years and Walk is now the local sheriff. Oh, Brilliant. And I won't tell you where the other three members of the no. friendship okay. group are, but it's really fascinating. I mean, Chris Whitaker is a British author and he's, I believe, won a silver dagger for a previous book. His first novel was Tall Oaks, which also was extremely well received. But, I mean, you and I have talked about this. He's had the most extraordinary life. Yeah. He, he said he got drunk the night before doing his English A-levels and didn't go to university, sort of effectively sort of dropped out for a while and he was delivering pamphlets, he he got mugged. Yeah. And it was quite a vicious mugging because he fought back and then got stabbed quite badly, I think, yeah. as a result of it. And he talks about the sort of mental health issues that he had mm. following that um, mugging. And then I think he turned to writing and he has said that writing has always saved his life and he would just jot things down initially and... He sort of recovered mentally enough to, I think he read something actually about a stockbroker making a lot of money and he thought, oh, I could do that. So he became a stockbroker, worked very hard to become a stockbroker and get a job. He was incredibly successful as a stockbroker. Yeah. But then... Lost it all. Lost it all. And he lost his employers over a million dollars, which he had to pay back over a very long period of time. They didn't call the police. I mean, he, he I think he did sort of push the limits of his appropriateness as a broker, but they didn't call the police. 
but he was able to sort of work hard and pay it back. And again, writing kind of saved him Mm. when he was at some of his low points. And then I think at one stage, married with a young child, he announces to his wife, I'm moving to Spain to write a novel. And he did. Mm. And this is his third book. And he's quite a character by the sounds of things. he sounds very interesting. Yeah. And so I'm really, well, I think maybe we might talk about this book in a later episode, Mm. but it's it's a very big book and it's certainly garnered a lot of interest. Mm, I'm very keen to read that Mm. one. I've heard So that's where we begin at the end. Yeah. What about you? What have Uh, you been reading? I read a book called Friends and Dark Shapes by Kavita Bedford. This was sent to me by Text Publishing, which is a Melbourne publishing company. They send me the most lovely books. And this was just beautiful. I absolutely loved it. It's a debut novel. Kavita Bedford is a young Australian Indian writer. She has a background in journalism, anthropology and literature. She's a writer. Uh, I think she's been a Churchill Fellow and I think she teaches media. And this is a story of a young woman mourning the loss of her father. Her father Mm. has died and she moves in with a group of friends into a share house in Redfern. And it just so beautifully captures the whole share house scenario Mm. in Australia. Mm. I don't even know how she's done it, but She's sort of a genius because I just felt like I was sitting in that share house in Sydney. Not that I've lived in a share house in Sydney, but Australian share houses have some very common feels to them, Mm. I think. And just all the things about the the food and the cooking and whose turn it is to do things and sitting around um, wasting time with your housemates interviewing for the fourth person. So there's three of them and then they're... <laughs> I love that. And that was hilarious yeah, because of the, the people that got rejected. Yeah. Just wasting time. Mm. All that. It's it's just beautiful. But it's done as vignettes. So they're sort of numbered oh, vignettes. Okay. So there's 60 vignettes. And I have to say, not a lot happens. So it's not a very strong plot-driven book, which you know, may not appeal to some people, mm. but it still moved forwards for me. I, I couldn't put it down. And the observations were very poignant. Mm. Do you think that it would apply to share houses elsewhere or is there something quintessentially Australian about it? I think it? you could recognise common things for yes. sure, but it's, she definitely is very good at creating that sense of place. It's yes. just that sort of sunny laziness that we yes. have in Australia yeah. and everything's a bit beaten up and the, yes. the fake grass on the backyard, you know, yes. it's just all a bit patchy. Yeah. And But certainly I think you could enjoy it. Mm. anywhere in the mm. world and recognise because the people, you know, young mm. people sharing a house. With time on their hands. Time on their hands and yeah. not much money and probably not spending their money in the best way, that no. sort of thing. So it's very universal in that sense. But she just captures that feeling so perfectly. The main thing I loved about it is her writing. Mm. It's it's just beautiful. So I'm not going to say much more about the plot, but it's called Friends and Dark Shapes by Kavita Bedford and I loved oh, it. Oh, lovely. Mm. So today, Louise and I, we came up with our theme because, as, as so often happens with us, actually, we, we were chatting at the end of an episode mm. and realised that we had both just started a book by the same author, <laughs> t- two different books, but both by the same author. I don't even know how we Maybe did that. Maybe that's what happens to book podcasters. Maybe. <laughs> you start reading the same I mean, Just on the same way. <laughs> <laughs> when you think how many books arrive, I mean, I've I'm, got... 
Yeah. I don't, I'd be embarrassed, but I think it would yes. be over thousands of unread books in my house. I think you've got, got more than me, but there's hundreds and hundreds there that I have not even got to. Of yeah. great books, and they're all fabulous. Mm. And each new batch comes in, and they're shiny and exciting. And you and I happen to read the one by the same author, so we thought let's do that. Mm. So the books that we've both read are by Tana French. You've read a more recent one, Lou. So do you want to mm. start? Yeah, with okay. That maybe yeah, that's and tell good. us about yes. that one. Um, this is a, a standalone Tana French novel, and I'd say that it's more mystery than thriller because, I mean, people sort of talk of Tana French as a writer of thrillers, but I'd, I'd say this is a little bit more mystery. So do you mean that the danger isn't as present tense? Well, and, yes, and correct. There isn't that so, immediate... So, yeah, so, I mean, look, it's not cosy. There's a whole heap of sinister lurking in this book. Yeah. But... Something's already happened. Yes, the danger guess, is past yes, and it's just yes, working out yes. what. I mean, some, there may be some danger present, yeah. but the main danger, yeah. yeah. And look, that's perhaps too simplistic a difference. Okay. And, and you know, it doesn't have all the procedural stuff in like some police procedurals have and stuff like that because it's, it's a completely different protagonist. And anyway, I'll get, I'll get to that. Okay. You know, like many of her books, they are, you know, my reading of Italian French books, they're pretty character-driven and this is the same in this book. This the, the character in this book, the central character in this book is Cal Hooper and he is a former Chicago PD police officer who has made, on the face of it, a pretty drastic decision to leave America and move to Ireland where he's found a run-down cottage in the village of Ardnacelty, Western Ireland, and he's looking for a quiet life. He is escaping some demons in Chicago, some rotten apples. Of course he is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> some rotten apples in the department where he was a policeman for 25 years, I think, yes. And it's fair to say that he probably has lost confidence in the justice system. Um, he's had an unpleasant divorce and he has a daughter who is grown up and, and no longer needs him uh, in the way that young children do. There is some ambiguity with Carl's character as well. He's also lost confidence in himself after an incident in Chicago. I'd say he's probably disappointed in himself, but he still thinks of himself as one of the good guys, and, and I'm sure the, the readers will think he is as well. I read an interview with Tana French, and she seemed to be suggesting that crime writers at the moment are quite shy of adopting the hero cop as a genre. Yeah. Obviously in the present political climate. But although at first glance, Cal definitely appears to fit that genre. And she said, look, that she really didn't feel qualified as a white person living outside of the US to comment on mm. current activism or protest movements or, or the police. But it's clearly influenced her to make Cal's character a bit more complex and possibly more morally ambiguous. Okay. So that's quite interesting. Of course, anyone who knows what it's like to live in a country town, knows that a new face is always going to attract a lot of attention. Anna Kelty is no exception. Um, there's invisible eyes everywhere and everyone knows each other's business. So Cal sort of busies himself renovating the house, painting, restoring furniture, but he becomes a very aware very, very early on in the book, this really isn't giving you any spoilers, it's pretty much all on the back cover, that someone's snooping around his house oh. and that somebody's watching him. And that turns out to be a 13-year-old named Trey, whose family is both literally and figuratively from the other side of the town. And Trey's older brother, Brandon, has gone missing. And Trey's obviously heard who Cal is uh -huh. and wants Cal to find Brandon. 
And of course, despite the voices in his head, you know, lifetime of being a cop kicks in and he starts to make some quiet inquiries. But there's no such thing as quiet no. uh, in this town. And he's gently told initially not to be stirring things up and to leave Brandon's whereabouts alone. So I'm not going to actually say Ooh. any more about the plot because it is a, a very recent release. It's her most recent book. The landscape of a sort of very wild and rural island has a very strong presence um, in the book. You know, there's the smoke rising from the chimneys in the town, the woodlands, the mist, the mountains, everything's very green. On the one hand, Tana French paints this, albeit raw and remote, but very idyllic kind of landscape but from the first few pages you know you feel that something sinister is lurking you know plenty of people are down on their luck this is a place where there are a lot of secrets and really where a lot of young people want to leave so there's also a bit of a statement about these kind of towns and economically the impact on the young people in the towns and there's a little bit of that going on as well. We're not really told why Cal has chosen Ireland and why he would move so far away from the US. He's got no Irish heritage. I, I assumed well I assumed when I started reading the book oh, he must, you know you know, you hear of cops in Boston, mm. the Irish mm. influence, but you know, he's got no Irish heritage at all. And and he seems out of place. But then I guess on reflection, maybe that that's kind of deliberate. Tana French says she has been watching a lot of Westerns and she was interested in the idea of a stranger coming to town who's like a sheriff. And Cal does have something of that persona about him. I mean, he's obviously he sticks out and he's, you know, one of the good guys in inverted comments. And, and he's also, he's persistent. So this is The Search by Tana French. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it, although I don't think it's as good as her most recent standalone novel from 2018, which was The Witch Elm. I enjoyed that much more, but I'd I'd still read this. Interesting. I do know that Tana French has American-Irish roots. No, she does. Yeah, most definitely. So I wonder whether there's... Yes, that yes. makes this more plausible yes. to her because yes. that's exactly what she's done. She was born in Vermont. Yes. And I think she, from memory, lived in lots of different countries yes. because her father was an economist. Was an economist yes. looking at something in different countries. Yes. And so she's herself chosen Ireland. Really, yes, yeah, and, and has lived there for quite a while yeah, now, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I think she did spend some time growing up in Ireland, some time in the US. She, yeah, Ireland yeah. was one of yeah. the countries. So clearly there's, you know, she and I think she's got Italian heritage as well. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly she's spent a lot of time in the US as well. I just at times thought, you know, would this guy... Yes, really, do people do that? Yeah, would people really and pick up sticks do. and, yeah. you know, find this broken down cottage and Mm. and anyway maybe they do what about you which one Uh, did you read so i read the first in her Ah, dublin yes murder mysteries murder squad series Mm. called in the woods gosh i loved it it was Mm. so good it's a big one it's almost 600 pages there is just something fantastic about getting lost in a big book and just looking forward Mm. every night to going back and Mm getting back into that world and it has a, a strong forward momentum, this one. 
Apparently, I've read somewhere that it came out at around the same time as The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and it may have gone a bit under the radar. Oh, wow. And that's... That, I didn't that, know that. Yeah, and I wonder if that's... I certainly wasn't really aware of these books and I was hooked on all the Stieg Larsson yes. books. So no, I read them quite a few years later. I didn't the read Dublin them at that Murders. time. Yeah, yeah didn't okay. read them at that time. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So they're called the Dublin Murder Squad series and they've been adapted to screen. I have not mm. seen them, but... Of, of course, now I really want to, particularly this first one. It's still available on SBS On Demand. Great. Okay. <laughs> it's there waiting for you, oh Virginia. Oh, my God, that's, that's so good. So in this first book in the series, um, and I should say all of the books follow a different investigator, the mm. six books in the series, and you can see why when you read the first one why that's the case. In this one we follow a detective named Rob Ryan and he has a partner named Cassie, and they're investigating the murder of a 12-year-old girl near an archaeological dig in Dublin, and a major highway is about to be built, and a team of archaeologists has been given permission to excavate a very spooky wood Mm -hmm. uh, before the tractors come in and start building the freeway. And a young girl has been found murdered, And she's been left on a big flat rock, almost as though she's a sacrifice. She was a promising ballerina and she was an identical twin. Mm. This would have fitted into our twins episode. It would. And there are suspicions that this murder might connect to an awful case 20 years earlier where three young children in the area went out to play in the wood and only one came back and that one was found very, very traumatised with amnesia and has never been able to remember what happened to him or to the other two. And one of the detectives in the murder squad has a link to this earlier case. I'm not going to say any more about Mm. that. But there is an issue throughout the whole of this book as to that person's ability to stay on the case, Mm. given that connection. And there's issues about who does and who does not know about that connection. So that added a real spice Mm. to the story. So I loved this. I loved the detail of the detective work and I loved the sheer slog that they went through. It goes into a lot of the detail of them eliminating suspects, gathering evidence. But what made this book really enthralling for me was the brilliant way that Rob and Cassie interview suspects together. Mm. They're a long-term team and they're just, they're great friends and they're really in sync with one another and they've worked out their shtick with each other beautifully and they manipulate mm. witnesses in such a clever way, most of the time I think completely legally and yep. legitimately, although I, mm. <laughs> I'm not... Grey. There's some grey areas. Mm. But depending on what they think they can get out of the witness or what point they're at mm. in the investigation... Things like with one witness, they made the the interview room incredibly intimidating. They made it very sparse and they covered the walls with the most gory photos of the dead girl on the autopsy Mm. table and that sort of thing and lots of files everywhere and made it look like they knew more than they Mm. probably did. I think that was at an early stage in the investigation. And then at a later stage... With a different witness, 
pursuing a slightly different line. They made the room much cosier and they took all that mm. stuff down off the walls and they had tissue boxes and magazines on the table and the files were sort of all shoved in the corner and they had pizza and coffee cups and food and it was much cosier and inviting and it was just coming in for a chat. Uh, so the, the visuals of that were really enthralling for me. But what really got me was the very clever interrogation mm. techniques and just the precise line of the way they worded their questions mm. and how they knew what they were about to get from the witness and then how far to push it and when to draw back, when to go a bit further and a bit heavier. It was brilliant. It's so well done. But it's interesting, isn't it, because I think she is flirting there a little bit with that morally ambiguous idea with the interview rooms. Yeah. And oh. So I think she kind of takes them to a point and then they don't necessarily get pushed over. And yeah. He says in, because this is narrated by, even though Tana French is a female, mm. her narrator is Rob Ryan, mm. who's a male, and he says we did lots of things, most of them legal. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I think she's a, obviously interested uh, in that yeah, kind yes. of grey area. Yes. And they, they do all sorts of very clever things and there's a scene where a policeman really does sort of entrap a witness, mm. but it's just on the side of legal and mm. really quite clever. But I'm not going to say what no. happened. But, oh, so many twists and turns. So good. So good. So it's a big book, 600 pages. Loved it. And you're going to read the next two? Absolutely <laughs> going. Well, there's six. Six, so yes. I feel like I've got to read. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll get the next one because I know... There's a common character in that one. I'm loath to criticise, but they are, I think they're so much more superior to the current. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just think her police procedural kind of, you know, shtick is fantastic. Yeah, she's really, I don't know. Really, really You would impressive. almost think she's been a policeman. Yes. Yeah, I think they're, they're extraordinary books. And actually I would recommend people to at least read that first one and maybe even a couple more before you watch the television series because, you know, it's obviously... Oh, you always have to read the book. Yeah, well, no, but a lot of people the don't rule. these days. But no, a lot no, of people don't these rule. days. But I just think with those, oh. the adaptation, as you can imagine, that's one of the six yeah, and one of the three that the TV series is based on and adapting these enormous books to television. It is still a superb television series, but, you know, you, it's an adaptation. You lose a lot. You yeah, lose a yeah, lot, and I just think yeah. they're brilliant books. Yeah, really looking forward to watching those. But, yes, I think I'll read a few more before mm. I make a start on mm. them. So that was In the Woods by Tana French. So uh, you read another one as well, Lou. I did. This is my classic. Or so we my... decided to go old and new, didn't we? We, did. we thought we'd we do did. a current crime novel and then... An old. An old one just to yes. compare and contrast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I decided to go back and read, uh, reread Raymond Chandler. I did read several of his books years ago because I had a colleague at work when I first graduated as a lawyer, actually, and I had a colleague at work and we both had this sort of fascination with crime fiction and he put me onto Raymond Chandler then. I've never read him. Yeah, so, uh, and he loved him. Tim absolutely loved Raymond Chandler. So I, I read several of his books then. And look, Chandler's best known character is the private investigator, Philip Marlowe, and he appears in each of Chandler's seven novels. And these were novels that were published between 1939 and the last one was playback in 1958. He did write several essays and short stories prior to that, but he is really known for the Philip 
Marlowe and then these novels. were adapted to movies, weren't there they? Are, oh, so many movies <clears throat> and so many multiple adaptations. Yes. So yes. Uh, many of you will have heard of him, I think, because really the movies that made his books so famous. Yeah. And also because I think the private eye hero, Marlowe, has sort of entered this sort of mythical status. And that has probably been aided by the fact that there were so many well-known Hollywood stars who played Philip Marlowe over the years. So we had Humphrey Bogart, Robert Mitchum, Elliot Gould, Dick Powell. And then, of course, Dennis Potter, the British playwright, wrote The Singing Detective, which was a television series. And then I think there's been a stage play of The Singing Detective. Now, The Singing Detective isn't based on the Chandler books, although in it the singing detective is called Philip Marlowe Uh and there's a lot of Chandler-esque kind of references in that TV series. And that was, I think, Michael Gambon. Oh, I love him. Who was was the singing detective. Marlowe is a character who is so exquisitely of his era and time such that I think by the 1950s there really wasn't a place for him anymore. Having said that, Chandler died in 1959 anyway, so it's hard to know, of course, you know, whether he would have continued. But there's a, there was a, there's a lovely essay that's in the New York Times in the 2000s who I can't improve on this description of Marlowe, so I thought I would share it with you. The lone wolf private eye was in its time, from the heyday of pulp magazines in the 1920s and 1930s through the film noir era of the 1940s and 50s, a pretty unbeatable archetype of modern masculine heroism. More independent than a policeman or a soldier, sexier than a Spencer Tracy priest, more virile than a screwball comedy playball, and exponentially wittier than a cowboy. It was a myth for an urban society, and it didn't quite survive the great post-war migration to the suburbs, where the streets just didn't seem mean enough to need a Marlowe to go down them. Of course, I think the streets of the suburbs are now plenty mean enough (laughs) for a Philip Marlowe, but maybe not in the 1950s. Chandler's writing was also really unique for its time and it wasn't greeted favourably at first, uh, mostly because readers were used to to mostly reading third-person book narratives, third-person narratives in, in, in fiction, and particularly in detective fiction in the 1920s. But in Chandler's books, Marlowe Uh, speaks directly to the reader in the first person and you actually feel like he's having a conversation with you because the slang that he uses, it's as if he's literally next to you, talking to you. And for its day, that was highly unusual. So The Long Goodbye was written in 1953, so it's his second last book. And we find uh, on the first page that Philip Marlowe is outside a nightclub in L.A., and by the way, L.A. is front and centre in this book and in all of the Marlowe books. You know, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, the streets, the mansions, uh, they are all real, such that L.A. for me is a character in the book. Oh, wow. there's, there's no question. And you know, as you know, I read a lot of Hieronymus Bosch, Harry Bosch books by Michael Connolly, and I think he really invokes Chandler in his books in the way that he uses L.A., in those Bosch books. In one of his other books, Philip Marlowe says of LA, it's a tortuous, nasty place filled with tough-looking palm trees and crooked cops. I smelled Los Angeles before I got to it. It smelled stale and old like a living room that had been closed for too long. 
but the coloured light fooled you. Oh, I wow. love that. Love that. Um, so Marlowe's outside the nightclub, the dancers in LA, and he encounters a drunk who appears to have had a mild alter- altercation with a woman. And so Marlowe ends up taking him home to sober up overnight, which is very nice of him. The drunk is Terry Lennox, and he's got scars all over his one side of his face. And the woman with whom he had the altercation, it's discovered, was his estranged wife. And Marlowe and Lennox develop a friendship over several months. Lennox is an ex-soldier from England. Um, He's been left with the physical scars from the war, but also lots of emotional scars. And he's an alcoholic. And Marlowe feels sorry for him. And then one night, Lennox comes to him and says, please drive me across the border into Mexico. And Marlowe agrees, providing that Lennox doesn't tell him why he needs to go. But when Marlowe gets back to LA, he's told that Lennox's wife is dead and she died before Lennox left for Mexico. And around the same time, Marlowe is contacted by a publisher, a Mr. Spencer from New York City, and he asks Marlowe to investigate the case of a missing writer, Roger Wade, who Marlowe finds fairly easily but he's troubled by the anomalies between the accounts of Wade and the accounts of Wade's wife, Eileen. And I actually cannot say anything more about the story, save to say that the lives of the Wades and the lives of the Lennoxes collide. And these are the two investigations. (laughs) Love it. And one of the reasons I can't say any more about the plot is there isn't much plot in Chandler's novels. I mean, they're plot thin, all of them. You know, it's really about the characters and the writing. And I really. So, is the rest of it really the investigation? It's the investigation, but it's also how Marlowe makes you feel about okay. what he's doing. You know, there's been lots of debates about Chandler's writing. These are obviously detective stories. There's lots of vernacular, there's lots of slang, there's lots of tough guy talk. You know, women are described as cool blondes or kittenish, but then. It's bizarre because there's also this all this imagery. Right. You know, there's lots of descriptions, the voices of his characters, their bodies, their mannerisms, their clothing, their homes, you know, the architecture yes, and the I furnishings, the decor. So there's this very, very strong sense of place and people. So to me it's all about mood. The books are all about the mood that Chandler creates. And It's this kind of juxtaposition between very rich writing with this sort of vernacular slang and plot-thin stories has divided critics for years about his books. He's been described as the most polished exponent of this form of highbrow, lowbrow literary entertainment. And that's how he's described, that he's a highbrow, lowbrow writer. And, you know, there have been comparisons with Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene, but then you'll have critics that say, oh, you know, he's... Because, I mean, a lot of Graham Greene's books are very current and topical and and then you'll have critics that say he's nowhere, nothing like Graham Greene, but actually I don't return to Graham Greene books, but I do return to Raymond Chandler books. So it's, it's fascinating. And I think for me what matters about a book is how the writing makes you feel. Definitely. So... I'm going to go back and read the series, well, all of them, because, I, I, they're, you know, they're easy to read as well. And Bogey um, and Bacall yeah. are just the perfect yes. actors yeah, absolutely. for this sort of book. I, yeah. You it, can it, just see why they were cast. Yes, and that they do feel like they're in a moment in time. Very atmospheric yes. and moody. 
although, of course, they did span, you know, a period of 30 years. Another thing I can recommend, I didn't want to watch any of the movies and I, I don't recall... I might have seen The Big Sleep, actually, which is one of his first books, um, but I haven't watched the movies. But what you can do is you can access the BBC radio dramatisations of these books, which are lovely to listen to. So that's what I did. I read this book and then I went to Audible. I had a credit on Audible and I accessed the BBC radio dramatisation, which only goes for about an hour and a half. There's several actors in it. And so it's a it's an abridged version of the book and it's fabulous to listen to. Oh, I was just thinking to to. that you would have done it on the BBC app. I didn't realise you could well, get I it on Audible. Can. That's cool. I yeah. probably can get it on the BBC app. I don't know. It, it, maybe it out. needs to be current. Yeah. And it's a really good way to get a fix of Raymond Chandler with that whole kind of moodiness of the voices and the, if you don't want to read the books, Yeah, basically. So I can recommend that. That sounds so, so that was good, my Lou. classic. That sounds fantastic. What about you? Well, I went even further back to 1902. <laughs> I... I read The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur mm. Conan Doyle. I read a few Sherlock Holmes books when I was a teenager. But I actually can't really remember which ones I read. I don't think I've read this one. So it's a long time since I've read him. And this was not quite what I was expecting. It was actually much more gothic than I had mm. thought it was going to be. It's a very quick read. It's 175 pages. And it's funny, having just said how much I loved really being in the thick of a huge 600-page book, I equally love a really short book. Yes. There's something really delightful yes. about a really short book that mm. you can just whiz through as well. So I sort of had the best of both worlds this time. And how interesting that a writer can craft, you know, so much in a short book. Yes. I mean, it's, it's very talented. So in this one, Holmes and his offsider Watson are visited by a man who's a doctor and he brings to them in their Baker Street rooms an 18th century manuscript which tells the tale of an old legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles in Devonshire. And it's a very spooky story concerning a hideous and terrifying massive black dog. And this story has plagued the Baskerville family for generations. And recently the current squire of the Baskerville family has died in very strange circumstances that evoke the tale. And the new squire has been located in America, or the new heir, mm. and he's been asked to come to London so he can inherit the title. And this doctor who was a friend of the family, is concerned that this next member of the family might be at risk in mm. the same way from this legend. So he brings this manuscript to them and says, you have to help me. So the book moves from Baker Street to the moors of Devonshire mm. and this is where it becomes really gothic. There's a creepy estate with a crumbling house in the middle of nowhere there's a very suspicious elderly couple who are the only people who, one's the butler the, and the wife's the domestic maid or whatever, they're the only people in the house and they, they tend to the family and there's something a bit creepy about them. There are creepy and strange people in the hamlet, which is a fair way away from the main house. Everyone's a bit suspicious. It's very wild and woolly and very isolated. And there's a terrible, muddy moor 
where animals just sort of get sucked up by the mud and disappear. And, and while you're reading this book, a horse actually gets sucked up by the mud and swallowed oh. in quite a graphic oh. way. So that just gives you the oh. a flavour of the... Um, of the bog. The bog. It's really... The sense of place is very well done mm. in this. I did pick one of the elements in solving this one mm. sort of immediately, which <laughs> says to you it wasn't that hard. If I, Because I don't think I'm very good at picking this. Because no. I don't read mm. squillions of crime books, I don't think I'm particularly good at picking them. And the fact that I picked this one tells me that probably everyone would. My observation about this is I... Just reading it through a 2021 prism, I was struck by how annoyingly immodest and self-satisfied <laughs> Sherlock is. Uh, you know, it's published in 1902. And as you know, I read a lot of 18th and 19th yes. century books and I, I love them. I think the writing's a lot mm. better and there's a lot of things to recommend mm. them. They're often really beautiful. But in this particular one, that male-dominated world is on a full display. Yes. And I don't usually mind that because I reconcile it by saying to myself, well, this is how things were back then and I'm always glad to see that things have improved. But I did feel some irritation at Sherlock's mansplaining. Yes, he's smug, isn't he? <laughs> he's so damn smug. And Watson is so obsequious yes. towards yes. Sherlock and so pleased when he gets a crumb of a compliment. Yeah. And the compliments are always backhanded. They're not true compliments at all. So I'm not sure if I'll read any more. Yes, um, yes. So are you, are you saying that maybe he's had his day? After Conan Doyle. I don't know. I mean, I'm not probably the right person to say because mm. I'm an mm. older person. Mm. I don't know whether young people would, mm. would read this and just think, oh, for goodness sake, yeah. he's mansplaining yeah. his way through this. But it is beautifully written and, you know, I do love all the clever mm. ways in which Sherlock can say the dog was of a certain height and it's because he's looked yes. to see what size the bite mark is on <laughs> Yes. You know, really clever And they're stuff. not formulaic, I have to say. Conan no. Doyle's not formulaic with his... No. This one had some interesting things. It was a bit first-person narrative in parts. It's a bit third-person narrative and it's epistolary. Mm. At one point, Watson is on the moors and writing back to... Sherlock Holmes. So he's doing, uh, are they? Reporting to him oh, what okay. he's finding in letters. Not diary entries, letters. Both. And yes. then there are diary entries okay. as well. So it's epistolary in both letters and diary. Yes. And he's telling the reader. So he sort of employs all mm. sorts of different mm. devices in this one. It sort of flips around and it works quite well. Mm. It, do, it doesn't seem disjointed. So overall I enjoyed it, but mm. I suspect if I'm going to read an older book. I'm not sure if I'll yes, go. Yes, for, although yes. I do love a short novel, as I said. So if I want to read something quick, maybe I would read because mm. there's a few more on my shelves that are a similar size. So, so that was The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a genre that just keeps on giving. Sure isn't does. It? Oh, my the goodness. The good old crime genre. It sure does. So do you have some bookish news, Lou? I do have some bookish news. So a couple of weeks ago, the winner of the Stella Prize was announced, and that was Evie Wilde, speaking of gothic, for her book Bass Rock, which is described as a modern intergenerational gothic triumph. The Bass Rock that they're talking about is the Bass 
an island in the Firth of Forth in Scotland. And it's the story of three women, one from the 1700s, one from the aftermath of the Second World War and one current. And they're all linked to each other and they're linked to the rock. And I might talk about that in an episode soon. So that's Evie Wilde. I really want to read that. Yes. I've got it at home. And... The other bookish news I had was that just this week we had the announcement of the Australian Book Industry Awards, which is always very interesting. And the book of the year was awarded to Julia Baird for her book Phosphorescence, yeah. which we loved, didn't yeah, we? we did. uh, we reviewed that book in episode 19 and I thought I might just read what the panel said about it because it's lovely. The closest we could come to describing phosphorescence is a meditation uh, it offers a profound, moving, eclectic and inspiring meditation on those things and people that make us glow in the dark times, which is lovely. Mm. It's beautiful. Yeah. And Pip Williams won the award for Best Fiction for her novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, which you've yeah, reviewed recently. It's beautiful. And neither of us have read the winner of the literary fiction book, which was Jessica Two for A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. Another one for us to perhaps yes. read. Yes. So that was the Australian Book Industry Awards. What about you? Do you have a writing tip? Or? I do have a writing tip. It's a little bit different from our usual one because it's not in the same way. But I was just thinking about writing and I remembered that I had really, really loved a book by Dada Graham Greene. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you should mention mm. him earlier. It's a slightly foxed book that I read called A Sort of Life by Graham Greene and it's his autobiography. I have slightly foxed. Are they republishing yes. it? Okay, yes. so they, it's, they, not that, it's not that they've discovered a, no, uh, an old book. Most, that's been, all of theirs, nearly all, I think. Because I, I must admit, I'd never. I'm not acquainted with this book by Graham Greene. No, and it only goes up to a certain point in his life where his writing career takes off. So it's oh, sort okay. of his younger life. Okay, and I think it's about his at the end talking about his. He had a, a sort of a legal case over one of his books where. It was J.B. Priestley threatened yes. libel action oh. over a character and Graham Greene addresses it and says he hadn't read the book and that, and I think the publishers ended up settling. It's quite, quite an interesting story actually. But what he does do, which I found interesting, was there's just some little mentions in here which if you are interested in writing a book, you might enjoy this book, which is published not only by Slightly Foxed, I think it's been published in other places, but he does talk about the the process of writing and oh, to me I think there's a lot you can learn from someone who's been successful at it very specifically saying how they did it even if that isn't how you end up doing it you could at least give that a try and he talks about because he was very hard up for money he was working as a journalist and sort of eking out a living trying to write these books and he was newly married and then he had a baby but at one point he says Again, I was without a future, for I had no confidence in those 500 words a day on single-lined foolscap. <laughs> so that's a little clue into how much he'd set himself to write yes. a day while he was working. And then later on he says, on page 195, I married and I was happy. In the evenings I worked at The Times. In the mornings I worked on my third novel. Now when I write, I put down on the page a mere skeleton of a novel. Nearly all of my revisions are in the nature of additions, ah, okay. which I find fascinating, yeah. of second thoughts to make the bare bones live. 
But in those days, to revise was to prune and prune and prune. So he built up his books yes. from a skeleton and added meat on the bones. Yeah, that's what he does rather now. Than stripping, rather Whereas than stripping. Whereas before, when he first started, he wrote the whole book and, and then pared and it, back, it back, prune, prune, prune. Oh, wow. So now he just puts a skeleton on the novel and then he goes back over it and adds and adds and adds. You wonder if... That's what happens to a confident writer, an experienced writer, that you know that your skeleton is sound and it's strong bones, so then you can flesh it out. Whereas yep. when you're starting out, maybe people blur, yes. blurt it all out. I think so. And then you have to strip it and edit yeah. it. And I've always thought that when you write a book, you just start at page one <laughs> yes. and, and you write everything and then you go yeah. back. <laughs> Well, they actually tell I've you not to do that. Since since if you have the idea yeah. that might be in page yeah. 600, you've got to write yeah. it down. But since we've been doing this and, you know, as I've read more and more, yeah. I've realised that's not at all what people, although some people do do that. Well, yes. But not many. And there was somewhere else, which I couldn't find in here, where he talked about having a very tight plan for mm. the book. So everything was very tightly executed, mm. exactly what was going to happen in every chapter. I couldn't find that reference when I went back through it, but I thought those little word, bits word, were Words of wisdom. So, yeah. I might have to persuade you for us to do an episode on Graham Greene because I'm quite conflicted about Graham Greene. I'm quite conflicted about some of his writing and and him as well. So I'd love to do an episode because okay. he's got some extraordinary books, okay. extraordinary books. I know you've read yeah, pretty uh, much all of them. No, I've got, there's plenty I could do. I've yeah. read a few, quite, he's, he was quite prolific. Yes. So uh, we could easily mm. do an episode. I think he's fascinating. And the whole converting to Catholicism yes. thing is yeah. equally fascinating. And the whole patriarchy with him as well is fascinating. Yeah. And but, did you know that his wife or his parents were both distant cousins? See, I think we could do a good episode yeah, on Yeah, very interesting. Mm. And what else have you been diving into? I have been watching a show. You may have seen it, Lou, but if you haven't, you would absolutely love it. It's on the SBS On Demand app and it's called Dead Water Fell. <gasps> I loved it. So, I loved have it. you seen all of it? Yes. It's so good, isn't it? Yes. So it's got David Tennant, mm. which was the big draw for me, and I've watched two out of the four set in Scotland and it opens with these two happy families. They're great friends. They obviously mix together socially a lot. There's lots of flashbacks to them at different things on the beach and having dinner parties and getting drunk together and the women work together in the preschool and then one's husband is a doctor and the other one's a policeman and it's quite an isolated place. So these Mm. people are all thrown together and then a tragic event occurs and then maybe everything is not as it seems. Mm. And it's so, so gripping. Good. It is superb. And I love the actress who plays David Tennant's wife, mm. who's been in lots of things. She's been in The Good Wife and The Good Fight. And I always thought she was an American actress, but she's British. She's lovely. She's fabulous. Yeah. 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 You obviously know how that ends, which I don't. But I'm, I just cannot yeah, wait to it's wa- watch the rest of it yeah. and find out what the heck happened there because it's not what you <laughs> think. Mm chilling so good so that's it for us today old crimes and new or in my case newer we hope you've enjoyed our little chat about crime books that was a lot of fun Lou. was um, love it you know it's my favorite thing to do talk about crime books yep we've got a really fun topic next week quite literally i can say that I'm really looking forward to that and we hope you have a good fortnight and we'll see you then Bye now. Bye. 
We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Is this going to be, are we telling Andy to leave this in or? I don't know. Oh, it's just. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just thought we were having what a bit of, <laughs> wasn't sure whether I was, what I was meant to be. <laughs>